Colis recta et insudia ascendi. All right, Ryan. Ryan, I'm drawing a fucking line in the sand here. Okay, do not read the Latin. Do not read the Latin. This is Cabin in the Woods. Patience Buckner. And there's something in Latin. Do not read the Latin. Dana! Dolor super vivo caro. Dolor igneo animus. Seriously believe nothing weird is going on. We have a winner! It's the Buckners, ladies and gentlemen. The Buckners pull the W. Let's get this party started! Get out of here. I guess we can up. Monsters. Magic. You understand what's at stake here. Yes! Help me! Help me! We should split up. Yeah, good idea. Really? Gotta keep the customer satisfied. Welcome to Bella Lugosi's Undead. I'm AJ. And I'm Ryan. And we're two guys who love horror movies. Mm -hmm. Uh, I would say it's something that we both kind of came to over the last decade plus. Yep. And as we've slowly fallen in love with horror movies, we just want a platform to talk about them more. And so we're starting our own podcast. Woo! Yeah, Yeah. some of you guys may have listened to us before. We had one uh, in the pre-COVID times that was called We Bought a Cabin in the Woods. And new era, new name. We love Bela Lugosi. We love classic horror movies. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a good fit. So, Ryan, kind of just to, like, get people in the mood to know where we're at as horror fans. What kind of got sure. you into horror movies? Yeah, so I grew up in the 90s and the late – in the early 2000s when gore porn was at its peak. And I've, I've come to, like, like and enjoy some of those movies a little bit more, but – Horror movies, to me, were really stupid and really didn't have, like, purpose and meaning. It were just, like, these gory films that didn't have anything. And really, the movie that changed my mind completely was The Strangers, which, you know, as we, like, yeah, and as we, like, dig into, like, horror films and classic 80s horror, they basically were like, we're done with this gore porn. We're going back to, like, a, a, a slasher home invasion movie. And I was like, oh, my gosh, like... Wait, you could be, like, scared and on the edge of your seat an entire horror movie? That's incredible. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's an underrated thing about our generation. Because I would say we are, what, like, mid-age millennials? Yep. Both of us were born in the early 90s, and we grew up with the internet and stuff like that. But horror was not in a particularly strong place for us growing up. There were some of the exceptions. I think that the Ring remake is pretty decent, and a lot of J-horror 
is yeah. is good. But at the same time, after the first Saw, unintentionally, the whole genre kind of shifted towards very edgy, pretty nasty focus on viscera. Yeah. <laughs> that, that dominated the, the, the genre for a while. And yeah. a lot of people like that. I know there, I have a lot of friends who are big Rob Zombie fans who are really sure. into the more like Eli Roth style of horror. But that never really appealed to me. It, I just felt, sure. felt like it was, if I want to be scared, I want to be scared. And it wasn't scary, it was just gross. Yeah, yeah. It made you feel queasy, but it was not actually scary. I really like your point that you make about um, Scream. And kind of the horror genre taking that reaction to Scream and creating this intense, edgy horror, right? Scream simultaneously is one of the best horror movies that's ever been made. And mm-hmm. also, I would argue that because it poked fun at the genre so hard in a way that I, I think it revitalized the slashers in particular could come back. But all of the other movies that tried to follow it up, even like Halloween H2O, for example, they flamed yeah. out so hard for non-horror fans that yeah. people wanted to get an actual rise in reaction instead of just replaying the legacy hits. And yeah. so that's why... There was like this underground darkness within the industry yeah. that kind of took a hold, and it wasn't just necessarily aggression for aggression's sake. But there's something to be said that at the same time, new metal is on the rise. That yeah. there's just like this darker side of not even darker, but just like more aggro side of society yeah. that's kind of rising up yeah. during this era, sure. and. I think that the movies began to reflect that, and I think that's why they were popular. But also, I think that it kind of put horror in a pretty bad place for a while. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think it really turned off a lot of people like us that like, you know, the suspense. And I, I like gore, and I, I, I appreciate gore and nudity if there's purpose, if it's purposeful, right? If it's purposeful yeah, and useful and it moves it forward, if it's just gore to make you, sh- it's, it's like shock value or it's nudity for shock value or to like, I don't know, like just purely arousal, like you know what I mean, um, is is kind of not as not as it doesn't hit home quite as much for me. But that's kind of where I'm with the horror genres. I I really like the cerebral horrors and I also have come to enjoy the more fun you know, slashers, gory movies from time to time, too. I just, I, I hope we don't ever go back to a time where <laughs> it's just the gore for gore's sake, right? Yeah, see, I'm not opposed <laughs> to gory movies. Uh, there's a lot of really great ones. And I think that if they're more of a coloring in the overall horror tapestry, then that works. Right. It's when they're right. the dominant art form that people begin to question why we like horror. Right. And are we just there for the sadomasochism of it all? Sure. And it's not what I go to watch horror movies for. And I think that that really turns around in the early 2010s. I think that there's yeah. suddenly a, a large bump back in the correct direction. And I think part of it comes from the fact that there were enough good horror movies like Beneath the Surface, but there were like so many one-offs that eventually people yeah. are like, oh, why are we not making more movies like that? I think like yeah. a great example of that is like something like Shaun of the Dead, or yeah. something like even like Hellboy is a pseudo horror movie. Mm-hmm. Sure, a- enough of those kind of came back into vogue, where eventually you know the saws ended up getting 
pushed away. They made more money for a while, but eventually they got pushed away in favor of a yeah. more little Nicky. Balanced... No, <laughs> oh yeah, little Nicky cheese. <laughs> So there's so many things about that movie that just do not hold up well. But mm. I, I do think that there was a return to some balance where sure. instead of just being like this hyper aggressive film, that horror began to reown its levity. And I think that's something that people forget that works the best about horror is mm. when the stakes are personal and when you balance that emotion between horror and comedy, most of yeah. the best horror movies, even The Exorcist or Halloween or Rosemary's Baby, have genuine moments of comedy in them and levity. Yeah. And I it's see. being able to experience the full range of emotions that really helps mm -hmm. any movie stand out, and horror can do something unique in that regard. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I appreciate that synopsis there. All right, so... Just because so, we're going to go ahead and kick it off with one of the movies that kind of pushed both of us back into horror, Cabin in the Woods. Uh, it officially was released in 2011 at the Toronto Film Festival, but it took a, it took a while for it to actually come out into theaters, and it was supposed to even be released way before that. And we'll get into the wow. kind of production, production hell that it ended up in, but <laughs> when it finally released, it was about a month before The Avengers. Uh, Chris Hemsworth, one of its stars, was already Thor. We had a pretty strong experience with the cast and crew, but at this point, all of these people were unknowns. And so when it finally released, it became something of a landmark horror movie and helped push people back into the genre. And now I think it's seen as one of the definitive works of the genre, especially in that decade. All right, so I'm going to go ahead and do a quick 90-second plot synopsis. And because I am the one who chose this movie, I'm going to be the one who knocks out this synopsis very quickly for everybody. Anybody telling you at home? <laughs> Set. Go. Cabin in the Woods begins with an underground work experience where Gary Sitterson and Steve Hadley, played by Richard Jenkins and the brilliant Bradley Whitford, are they're working on some ritual. They're clearly government agents, but like we have no idea what they're up to. It then smash cuts over to a bunch of kids. Uh, their names are Dana, Jules, Kurt, Holden, and Marty. They're five kids who just want to go spend a weekend up at their friend's cabin. They, On the way there, they run into a weird old man at a gas station. The gas station man is very creepy and tells them don't go, but they go anyway. It turns out the gas station man is working with these two American, like, guys from the beginning were like, oh, that's weird. What are they all doing together? Well, the kids show up at this cabin and they realize, oh, there's some strange things going on in the woods. And sure enough, they go down into the basement. Some weird monsters begin to pop out, some zombie creatures, and they start killing all the kids. The kids are fighting for their survival and they start dying one by one until all of a sudden only one girl is left. However, she gets saved by one of the boys, Marty, who we thought is dead. And so Dana and Marty travel into the underground, they find out that there's a giant ritual going on. They're all part of a ritual sacrifice to satisfy some old gods. They continue to kind of survive while everybody else in this little bunker is being killed. And at the end of the day, they all die. Uh, everybody dies and the world ends. <laughs> right. And that is 90 seconds on the dot. Whoa! Ooh. Killing it! <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, we're spe we spent through the plot there, but that is the basic yeah. synopsis of Cabin in the Woods. 
And I guess to fill in everything else about the that I think is kind of important is the is that the four characters that are the four people that are in there that have to die are the final girl, the Joker, the athlete, and who's and the and the harlot. Is I think it, the official five are the virgin, the whore, the okay. uh, the athlete, the uh, slash like jock. Yeah. Uh, I forget what Jesse Williams is supposed to play. And then it's definitely supposed to be like the jester. Yeah, exactly. So, yep. And then all five of them die. Yes. Eventually. But the order kind of changes around. And by the way, I, I confirmed it. It is the scholar. The scholar. Okay. Holden, who's played by Jesse Williams. Uh, yeah. Is the scholar. So that's the difference mm. in the group. That's interesting. Yeah. That's interesting. All right. So Cabin in the Woods one of the things that kind of stands out about it, and I think at the time was really maybe, I don't know if overblown is the right way of phrasing it, but uh, one person was really involved in it that got a lot of credit for the film, and I struggle with that person's credit at this point, but he's undeniably influential. Joss Whedon uh, comes in, and him and his friend Drew Goddard are working on Buffy, and they kind of begin to formulate this idea for for Cabin in the Woods. They both love horror movies. They kind of want to poke fun at it, but they also want to give loving homage. And I think that the, the Joss Whedon of it all is difficult. <laughs> yeah. um, given his recent issues within the industry, mostly with how he tra- treated his ex-wife and other yeah. women on set, it yeah. is problematic to say the least. At the same mm-hmm. time, Buffy the Vampire Slayer is one of the iconic television shows of an era. As mm-hmm. is as is Angel, so he clearly had a lot mm. of credit within the genre. He sure. literally spins this off <laughs> as he gives this to Goddard. He goes and makes the Avengers, which, as I noted, released just a few weeks after this movie. Wow. And all of a sudden, he is like on top of the world. So this is like yeah. undeniably the Joss Whedon peak. And when this movie released and got popular, it was like a huge sticking point that Joss Whedon was so involved because it's just. Everybody still had a positive opinion of the guy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm seeing, uh, I'm seeing the rest of his movies, and it's just like the Justice League. Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, in what recent, else? yeah, pretty much from Justice League on, with how he abused, it's oh, al- so, yeah. al- allegedly abused Ray Fisher, and uh, has has a lot of alleged negative things in his backlog. <laughs> it's not great uh, at this point. Yeah, so he's been like, he's been donezoed. <laughs> I wouldn't say, like, especially because I think the word gets thrown around too much. I wouldn't say that I know. he's canceled, per se. He still had, yeah. even after all of that, he still had a show on HBO and got to dress, direct the Justice League. It's not like he doesn't get residuals from the Avengers. Yeah. He's still making yeah. money off of all of this. Sure. But I would say he is a less desirable person to work with now than he was a decade <laughs> ago. Sure. Makes sense. Did you ever watch Buffy? I didn't. I think I was too young when it was, like, on TV, and then everyone says I should watch it, but when it comes to shows with, like, five-plus seasons, I don't want to, like, I just I just know I'll get sucked in and watch it all the way through, and I, I just don't have time for that life. <laughs> it's funny. I think I'm one of the weird people who has seen all of Angel and has not seen Buffy. Oh, my God. Because, <laughs> like, for me, I when I was growing up, Angel was on, on, I want to say it was like the CW, at like yeah. 8 a.m. 
every yeah. morning. So <laughs> I had this was like when TiVo had just come out. So I recorded yeah. all of Angel, and my family and I watched it. <laughs> And yeah. so every day I would get new episodes, and because it was in syndication yeah. at that point, the show was over. I was able to just yeah. like watch the whole thing, and that's how. That's interesting. Like like pre Netflix kids, that is how yeah. like, we used to watch pre Netflix. Yeah. <laughs> so I was not like the biggest Joss Whedon fan, but he had created something that I really loved, and I still do love Angel as a show. Sure. That's interesting. I never, I literally have never seen Angel, and no one has suggested that I do. So I just have never even. It's like completely off my radar. Yeah, I mean, it's just basically David Boreanaz, who is in Bones. He's a vampire, yeah. like, and it's <laughs> about his vampire uh, adventures. And he That's was, cool. and he was a main character on Angel or on Buffy. Oh, okay. He he was Buffy, like yeah. one of her love interests, and so they spun him off into his own show. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it's basically like he's a private eye solving the case of the week. It was interesting. Like, yeah, like it it's a fun show for sure. But yeah. so for me, that was kind of like my introduction to Whedon. And then everybody was so high on Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog. I just remember mm-hmm. that being like a huge thing when we were in high school. Yeah, I've never even heard of that, honestly. Yeah, it was just basically Neil Patrick Harris is like a villain. And it was ah. supposed to be like a, a, a musical TV show. And mm-hmm. instead, because of the writer's strike that year... It got turned into, like, uh, essentially a, a one-off movie. And oh, okay. it was, like, super fun, but it was, like, one of yeah. those things where Joss Whedon w- was involved and Neil Patrick Harris, just before he got How I Met Your Mother, is involved. Mm-hmm. And so there was, like, this weird cult that built around that as well. Fascinating. I mean, I do love Neil Patrick Harris, so... Yeah. I'm upset that it didn't become, like, a TV show, but you cannot write a musical without writers. <laughs> yeah, it's... <laughs> yes, I would agree. And even so, like, musical television's, like, pretty tough. Like, the only show that I think successfully yeah. thread that needle is Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, and that's Yeah, okay. Crazy Ex-Girlfriend's fantastic. Yeah. All right. Uh, so, Drew Goddard and Joss Whedon, they write the screenplay. They, like, literally get a hotel, and they, just for, like, three days straight, wrote the entire thing. And wow. so they put it all down... And they say, okay, cool, we're going to go ahead and make this movie. Goddard has also working a bunch at the same time. He uh, would do World War Z as well as another movie that he worked mm. on. Um, okay. He would later do The Martian and Bad Times at the El Royale. So he's like pegged mm. as somebody who's really interesting, especially when it comes to Marvel stuff. He was mm. heavily involved in the creation of the Netflix Daredevil show. And then he, oh, left, wow. he left it because he was going to go direct the Sinister Six movie for Sony, mm. and then they totally screwed him, and wow. just never made that movie, because they just, the Garfield movies weren't working. And <laughs> so... Uh, How is that related? That's so, like, off the cuff. <laughs> well, because the Sinister Six characters were being built in the Andrew Garfield movies. Oh! So... I was thinking the cat! Oh my god. <laughs> I was like, how is that? <laughs> that, that would be hilarious if, like, the Eddie or the Bill Murray Garfield movie is why yeah. a Sinister Six movie never gonna, happened. You know what? We're, these Garfield movies aren't working. We're not doing it. The Tale of Two Kitties <laughs> didn't make enough of a gross. Okay, sorry. Go ahead. All good. But so, just before Goddard has all that hyper success and eventually it's not made for an Oscar for The Martian, mm-hmm. he gets this gig. And like I said, Whedon goes on to start making the Avengers, so he can't do both at the same time. So they begin yeah. filming Cabin in the Woods in 2009. 
However, even though they filmed it in 2009, it wouldn't actually get released until 2012. Wow. Part of that is because there were, it kind of passed through a bunch of different companies mm-hmm. as it was in the production. And as it kind of got like passed around and eventually sold off um, and, and released under Lionsgate, it was just kind of like this odd film that MGM wanted the movie to release. They believed in it, but they went bankrupt and they couldn't afford to make other oh. movies. So they had to sell wow. it off. And yeah. if it wasn't for another weirdly problematic figure who keeps popping up uh, across yeah. a lot of horror and genre films of this time, um, Henry Knowles or Harry Knowles, who ran Ain't It Cool News and has been accused of uh, harassing a lot of women. He used to have a film festival in Texas uh, called But Numathon, where mm. he would play just like straight genre movies for 24 hours straight in a theater and people would show up and sit through the whole thing. And so it received a huge like applause there. And because that festival was also in Austin, it later would play at South by Southwest mm. and in the following year. And they kind of just like launched it into the stratosphere. It was like, okay, genre fans know this movie is awesome. We need yeah. to see this movie. But for, yeah. but so yeah, again, it begins in 2009. Mm-hmm. It kind of sits on the <laughs> shelf for a year as MGM figures out its money problems. It yeah. finally re- goes to a, a festival in 2011 and then goes to a second festival in 2012 and then releases in April before wow. one of the base movies in the world releases. So it kind of cut off its legs a little yeah. bit. <laughs> yeah. I, they're lucky they didn't go straight to videoed. They're really lucky they didn't get straight to videoed. Yeah, and, and I think that the only reason it doesn't is because there's enough budget here. Uh, I believe yeah. it's in the mid-20 millions. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a 30, 30 million. Yeah, $30 yeah. million dollar budget uh, ultimately is, is the thing that helps it stay afloat. The other thing is that a bunch of the people in the movie become stars after mm. appearing in this movie. So it's got, like, star power, too. Cause, yeah, because they filmed it in 2009 when they weren't, and now all of a sudden we got Thor. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the Chris Hemsworth of it all is really interesting. Suppos- yeah. Supposedly, Chris Hemsworth, while on this film, they start showing the dailies off to other people, and they're like, hey, this guy's like a movie star. So he gets cast in yeah. Red Dawn, which is, wow. ironically enough, another movie that would get delayed until, like, 2013. Because wow. they had to, they basically made it one way and said, oh yeah, China's going to be the evil bad guys, and they're like, oh, maybe we shouldn't do that. And they had to, like, redo <laughs> all of the background stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, so they eventually made it. I think I think it's North Korea ends up being the com- the country that invades America in, in the yeah. remake of Red Dawn. North Korea is always the fill-in for China. <laughs> right. But then he gets cast in Red Dawn, and then a couple days later gets cast as Thor. So all that's happening while he's making cabinet cuts. <laughs> and then Jesse Williams, another big star, he's in uh, – he, he plays uh, Holden. He's He's the scholar character. Okay. He films this movie in 2009, and then Grey's Anatomy airs its first episode with him on it in October of 2009, and he just left the show, like, wow. this last year. And he's one of the big stars. Wow. Uh, and so it's got, like, a ton of star power. Right, exactly. And then you have Kristen Connolly, who is playing Dana. She's our lead. She ends up being on House of Cards for a couple seasons, and she's bounced around on a couple other... Uh, pretty decent projects as well. Fran she's Kranz, a journalist, right, from House of Cards. Yeah, she's one of the, uh, yeah she's one of the journalists in House. Or actually, I believe she's the secretary 
for one of the politicians in the first season. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. I think she's having an affair <laughs> with one yeah. of the politicians. Um, <laughs> Got it. Yeah, Fran Kranz, uh, who plays the stoner Marty, he actually mm-hmm. directed a movie last year called Mass, and it's about mm-hmm. uh, two families talking about the way that their families are always intertwined because of a, a, a school shooting. So sadly, yeah. extremely relevant today. Uh, as as we are recording this, but also it, it's an extremely emotional film. So if you're in the mood to cry, watch Bass, and he <laughs> shows a lot of promise as a filmmaker going forward. Yeah. So the the whole team is really super popular. Not to mention you sure. have Richard Jenkins, and you have and you have Bradley Whitford, and you have Sigourney Weaver all popping into the movie as well. Yeah. I, I do love the note that apparently he's, like, super jacked, <laughs> and they were like, we're not going to have you take off your shirt, because you're supposed to be, like, a fucking jokester stoner. <laughs> yeah, that, that was something, so, as part of the research, that was something that, that Godard said, is they originally were going to have all the characters, like, jump into the lake at one point, and Friend Kranz was just, <laughs> like, like too, too jacked, too jacked, yeah, and so all the other characters like, jump in except for him. <laughs> And he's like, no, nah, dude, I'm too high. Like... <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> I forgot how they got around that in the movie. I'm pretty sure he was just, like, too high. To yeah, he he's literally sits, sits on the dock and watches all the other kids splash around. Yeah. <laughs> That's so um, funny. Yeah, and the movie's also full of other, like, Buffy people. Like, Amy Acker, who's the woman scientist in the labs. She comes from Angel and Buffy. Tom Link was on Buffy. They both worked with Joss Whedon. So you have a lot of people who are feeding into the the, the Whedon ecosystem are working their way into this movie as well. Mm-hmm. Of the so Richard Jenkins and Bradley Whitford, who are the two government people downstairs who are running the control room, who do you like more? I, I'm always super curious about this because I feel like it's like a test. For so the tall one is who, and the short one is who. <laughs> okay, so Bradley Whitford is the shorter one with all the jokes. Richard Got Jenkins it. is the tall dad from Stepdad, from Stepdads. <laughs> okay, sounds good. I, I, I like Bradley. I just love his obsession with, like, the mer people, and he's like, he, like, oh, he had the shell in his hands. Like. <laughs> <laughs> he does. I, I did not notice that until, like, the second or third time that I watch it, but he literally does have a conch in his hands. <laughs> yeah, he he's about to it blow it. <laughs> and he's like, he had it in his hands. It was so close. I'll never get to see mer people. <laughs> We'll definitely be talking about that more in just a little bit, because the more yeah, people right. see it is one of my favorites. <laughs> yes. What are you, Richard or Bradley? I am Team Richard, but also because I oh. feel like he is, one, I just usually gravitate towards Richard uh, Jenkins in most sure. movies. Uh, sure. he's, he's literally coming off of an Oscar nomination when he takes on this wow. role in this movie. That's so he, he's like also like, yeah, I can do whatever I want right now. And he's like, you know what? I'm going to do this weird movie. And it's just kind of like awesome. Yeah. But I also, agree. Richard Jenkins in Step Brothers is like one of my all time favorite performances. <laughs> so yeah. I, I basically gravitate towards him in everything. and everything. I do think he is the, uh, the moral center of this movie in a way where yeah. other people kind of have other questions. His whole thing is I have to do this. I don't want to do this, but it's yeah. either this or everyone dies. And I think yeah, that exactly. his devotion to that mission is admirable and gives it makes him make more sense as a character yeah absolutely and, and like you said with the, when it comes to horror it gives the personal it makes it personal 
right? Yep. Everything that they're doing, it makes it very personal. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I also love about this movie is like all of the monsters. There's so yes. many monsters. <laughs> Do you have a favorite monster? I mean, there's so many that that it's really hard to like pin down. But I love the um, the J horror stuff. It was yeah. so cool. Like, <laughs> when the little girl is torturing yes. the classroom of children. Yes. And they keep cutting to Japan. Love, They're like, yeah, Japan's 100%. Like, yeah, I know. I just love that they, like, beat it by, like, love of small children. That's how they beat the, the like, the ghost. And they turn into a frog. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I thought it was interesting that everywhere in the world was running was running these simu- like these simulations trying to like do it is it daily that they have to do this no it, it's like the... yearly it's supposed to be yearly oh it's once a year okay yeah yeah so it makes like it's so cool because like i mean if you watch a lot of international horror like there is these cultural differences that they have in their horror just from like history and you know all that type of stuff so you know j-horror obviously has a lot of these different ghost stories than like American horror stories, you know, and, and the mor- the morals and the norms are different. Like, mm-hmm. in Japan, J-horror is huge. In Korea, they have really great horror movies. Yes. But, <laughs> but Koreans don't really like horror. My friend is in Korea, and he's like, yeah, they just don't really dig it. Like, they don't actually like it. There's no market for it. <laughs> yeah, I, I know for a fact that they have some of the best Korean, like, filmmakers in the world work in horror. Yeah. I mean, especially when we're talking about, like... Like, Bong Joon-ho is obviously one of the many sure. people who you would cite. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, South Korean horror is among the best in the world, if not the it's best. It's so good. It's so, so good. <laughs> and it is interesting that your friend's kind of seen that observation that there's just not as much of an audience for it in yeah. South Korea. But outside, yeah. there's yeah. you know a lot of respect for what they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. I think it might have something to do with the fact that the genre has began repopularized in recent years mm-hmm. and so many of those filmmakers are the best filmmakers in the world and so yeah. there's uh it, it's an easy way to identify a talent and then have them go on to do other things yeah it's, it's the same way that it works in america how like john krasinski wants to make it as a director he makes a quiet place you know yeah. it, it's it, you, you can it's like a cheap in almost right jordan peele makes get out yeah like a, a horror is like a cheap in to, to becoming a director because it doesn't cost a whole lot to make a good horror movie exactly i mean like even yeah. this one that we're talking about right now it only costs 30 million dollars which in the grand yeah. scheme of movies is not that expensive it's like just for above... a horror movie though it's like kind of expensive for a horror for movie, a horror movie it is pretty expensive but to be fair so there's so much so many effects in this movie I think, like, yeah so dave anderson and afx studios are the people who make all these monsters they okay. on t- on set had a hundred different types of monsters filmed they had 70 additional zombies um wow and, and and they're building all these things what's really cool is that dave anderson is married to heather langenkamp who horror fans will know as nancy from wow. uh, nightmare on elm street She's arguably the wow. most famous character in that franchise, other than Freddy yeah. Krueger. And in this movie, Heather Langenkamp works on the movie as a makeup artist, as Heather L. Anderson. So that's just kind of a cool, like, horror throwback thing. Yeah, that's and really, really cool. they created most of the monsters 
practically. When you watch the, the behind-the-scenes uh, footage, the Banshee is real, the Buzzsaw head dude is real, who looks kind of like Hellraiser, the unicorn is a horse, just to straight up as a horse with a little horn <laughs> glued onto it. Uh, the gremlin creatures are people in costumes. Even wow. the fire-breathing fire, fire pumpkin is somebody walking around with a giant pumpkin-like puppet, and they're shooting wow. fire out of its mouth. Oh, dude, that's dope. I want to be that fucking puppet. <laughs> yeah. Acor- according to them, it took them eight weeks to build everything. They had to expand wow. their crew from 10 people to 60 people. They used wow. a shop by the Burbank airport to make everything. They wow. sent all the stuff from Burbank to Vancouver. And then even once they got there, they realized, oh, we have more space than we realized when we're filming this movie. Because they literally filmed it in like an air, like an airplane government building yeah. at night and they're like yeah. we don't have enough monsters to pop in space so they had to go back and do more character design and wow. then pass it over to vfx animators who would then animate in the creatures i think wow. the best example is the giant snake who yes. eats up most of the screen when he pops up yeah <laughs> that was so dope yeah so i mean it this is like it's so interesting that they were able to fit all of these different types of monsters in, but it also makes it kind of like a Where's Waldo as you're watching yeah. the movie. You're like, what horror movie do I like? Is my horror creature going to pop up? If you're yeah. a Stephen King fan, there's an evil clown stabbing people. Yeah, <laughs> there's a point where like the group of people walk out that is like straight up the strangers. Yeah, like all yeah, the... it was literally from the. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's a great way. Because one of the things that we like to talk about, Ryan and I, is how yeah. movie horror movies have so many Easter eggs and nods to other horror movies, and Cabin in the Woods is one that really does a good job of that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's constantly communicating about, I mean, it's literally making fun of and giving reason to and creating, like, lore around why horror movies are the way they are, why it is that way. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Were there any other scenes before they get down into the crypts where all of the monsters are being held by the government that you want to talk about? I don't know. I, I think that I think the cool thing is is how they orchestrated all of the scenes, like the scenes from the horror movies. Like, for instance, like uh, when they're in the woods, right? Yep. And she's like, "No, I don't want to sleep with you out here." And they're like, "Increase the like hormones, right, into the air." And yeah. So, and then they increase they de- increase the lighting, right? So it like m- motivates them and moves them to do these certain things, so that it's like predictable, quote unquote predictable, right? And so yeah, um, and kind of building on that, like it's so cool because I mean, there's a whole book. It's called I think it's what is it called? Uh, Chainsaws and something. But it basically talks about how psychologically um, horror movies have to be predictable because if they're not predictable, then they're so scary that people can't watch them. So this kind of gives like purpose and meaning to the predictability of horror movies. Like, Oh, it's predictable because we're creating this space because there's a, we have to kill them in this order so that we can save humanity from giant monster gods. That's a great (laughs) point. It's something I hadn't really considered that they would have to die in a certain order on purpose. Uh Yeah. And that is something that helps the genre as a whole. Is being like, yeah, you know, we're all playing off each other anyway. Let's not pretend that we're not. Right. Then it gives them the wiggle room to give meaning behind that instead of us just always, people always say, oh, well, now they're going to die. It's like, yes, 
We know. Yeah, they're supposed to. Well, this is what it's we're a, here for. <laughs> exactly. It's like it's like it's like going to a romantic comedy, being like, oh, the characters are gonna get fall in love with each other. Like, <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. Oh no. <laughs> Oh no, this is so predictable. What? They're gonna, they're gonna like... get in a fight? I hate when they get in fights in these movies and <laughs> pretend that they're, they're not gonna end up together. Yeah, exactly. No, it's true. It, it's, every genre has its own little quirks. And it's part of what you love about them, right? Like, the, all heist movies have some similarities. You know, it's not to say that the formula can't get a little stale. And if you're just right. playing it by the numbers, you know, m- maybe then there is some problem. But at the same time, right. like you said, there's a comfort in that yeah. in that process. Exactly. The the scene that always stands out to me, and it's related to what you're talking about, how they're like turning up the hormones, is the wolf scene. Is yeah. the, the wolf makeout scene is so weird <laughs> yeah. and kind of gross. And the the effects team was talking about how to make it even possible for the actress to continually do the takes, uh, Anna Hutchinson. That they actually, yeah. first of all, they had to prove with the Canadian government that it wasn't a real wolf. That yeah. that is, I thought was very interesting. They had to like write a letter and be like, I, "We promise this is not <laughs> real. <laughs> we didn't kill a wolf <laughs> and then taxidermy it." So that, that that in itself is interesting. But then they, the tongue of the wolf. The reason it's so like protruding is because they had to be able to take it out and wash it. Um, they would cover it in powdered sugar. So when she was like doing the scene, it wouldn't be like gross plastic in her mouth. Latex, it was, like, yeah, it would, yeah. Which again is still weird. The the thing yeah. that I think is weirdest about it is that they did fifteen takes. That yeah. takes, seems like it's too many. <laughs> yeah, that's a little bit much. What I was saying is like it's probably like super awkward, and I wonder how many takes like she started, and she was like, "This is so fucking weird." Like, how do you get into? That scene. That, that's a Do good you know point. what I mean? <laughs> All I know is that there were a lot of takes. I don't know how many of yeah. them were she was able to keep her composure through yeah. laughter. Because I can't Can you be... imagine all the just fifteen of her being seductive and sexy in all fifteen takes? Like... No, yeah, that'd be a... Yes, that'd be really bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I would say the the other thing that like really stands out to me is just how freaking weird the Buckner family is. The, yes. the the torture zombies. Yeah, that was like a really deep character build for since there's so many, right? They like found the book and there's like <laughs> I, I think it's like so genuinely disturbing. And if that had been the whole movie, I think that the movie still works. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Right? Like even if we never get the below the ground stuff, I think it still would be like an above average horror movie regardless yeah, solid b movie yeah and i think everybody would have loved it and the fact that it's got both of these elements is so cool to me yeah absolutely yeah the the depth of the how horrifying that story was that they were having in the journal mm-hmm. right? like where she's being like tortured and like killed and they're killing people and she's mm-hmm. watching and it's just like it builds that tension of like holy shit this is like legitimately horrifying right well and, and kind of building out of that too uh Goddard went on record was talking about how once the deaths start the sexuality of the movie disappears mm. and they yeah. actively wanted to depart from that as soon as Anna gets her hand cut by yeah. one of the Buckners it disappears like she's still wearing her shirt and she's still like not I would I wouldn't say she's fully dressed but you don't right. actually see nudity from that point forward wow that's interesting 
And I think that, that it is actually respectful. And yeah. also, it helps what we were talking about earlier. Many of the torture porn kind of movies that populated the decade before this would have just yeah. had more. I, I think yeah. to like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre or I, the, the right. remake, or I think to like Friday the 13th, the, re, the mm, reboot. That remake was so bad. <laughs> yeah, and, and those movies have a lot of it. And yeah. this one doesn't. And I think that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think they were really trying to differentiate, like saying this is like we're actually trying to say something here, right? Instead of just <laughs> mm-hmm. boobs and guts. <laughs> like... Exactly. Another huge thing that I think we should also touch on is the reason why the second half of the movie, the government team working in the bunker works is because of Drew Goddard's upbringing, um, mm. that he grew up in a town ta- in the town where they literally invented the atomic bomb. And mm-hmm. all the people who live there are super smart people, but all had to do something really horrific. And that, that is so fascinating to me wow. that, that, that that part of the movie is so particular. Um, yeah. The town that he's from, Los, Alam- Los Alamos, has the high, mm-hmm. had the highest IQ in the country, and it also had the most churches per capita. So you mm-hmm. kind of see it when Richard Jenkins talks about, when he gives like a speech, when the Buckners kill... Yeah the first girl and uh, Anna yeah. Hutchinson's character that right. he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm praying to God. Thank you gods for, we give this to you because they have to believe that what they're doing, this horrible act yeah. is in service of something bigger. Right. They were literally had to stop the party to literally say a prayer. Right. <laughs> exactly. And, and if you think about it in the context of like Hiroshima and Nagasaki, they literally right. had to believe that they were fighting evil to right. be able to create something so deadly that would yeah. change the world i see that's super interesting to have yeah, that absolutely. element within this movie about no, horror movies yeah yeah no absolutely that's fascinating yeah that like darkness of the human the human psyche attached to like hope and faith so one of the things that we want to kind of discuss is that we are going to have awards throughout our episodes where we're going to hand off prizes to different moments from movies. And the first award that we have to discuss is Best Death. Yes. So here are some of the nominees that I was able to compile, okay? Once Marty and Dana get downstairs, all of these soldiers try to take them into custody. Instead, they unleash the elevators on them. So I count this as two different scenes. There's the first elevator scene. There's a second Mm -hmm. elevator scene. The first Mm -hmm. one ends... And then they, it, we see all the monsters killing wow. them. And then the second group shows up into like a really bloody room. And then yeah. all of a sudden, like there's a ding, and we just see the blood spring against the window, <laughs> and like hands <laughs> sla- slamming. So there's that. Yeah. There's the unicorn death, where a unicorn impales a man against a wall. There's <laughs> the toss to the snake where a monster grabs yeah. a person and throws them off the balcony, and then a, a giant snake eats them in midair. <laughs> yeah. The mermaid eats Steve. Uh, Steve, played by yeah. Bradley Whitford. Mm. So disgusting. <laughs> yeah. There's, during all the chaos, we see all the different television screens and all the different people who are getting murdered by different creatures. One woman just shoots yeah. herself in the head. I think that yeah. was... Honestly, <laughs> she's the yeah. luckiest one. Yeah, I know. She made a calculated decision. <laughs> There's one person who gets set on fire while essentially the two shining girls are following him. 
And then finally, Amy Acker, she's the woman scientist downstairs. When Richard Jenkins is jumping into the escape hatch, she gets grabbed by a giant tentacle and just gets pulled away. Yeah. So what do you think is the best death? I think, I mean, it's not just one death, but when I really do think that the when the SWAT team comes in to, like, capture the the um the two characters mm-hmm. and they open the elevators on them is just so intensely awesome like so good. <laughs> yeah and you get to see all of it like um and I, I was thinking like the monster that was cool that we didn't mention was like the vampire bat thing that was yes. flying around that was so dope well, and, and it, so it's interesting you pointed out that one in particular so They also filmed a lot of this practically, and so there's scenes with the vampire bat and scenes with the gremlins that, like, they shot against green screens where it's people being grabbed by people in those costumes and being flung around in the air. Oh my god, that's awesome. So the the, the giant vampire bat itself is a CG creation, but, like, they grabbed people and threw them through the air with wires. (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. um, In fact, that, that hallway... They said that they put 220 gallons of blood on the walls and floor. Oh my gosh! Um, it, it Dude, just, that was such an amazing scene. What, I, I have to go hands down. That that hallway scene is easily the best. Like, yeah, I think that the, it's one. It's great because of how disgusting it is. Two, yes. it is so creative. Yes. Three, it's really funny. It's really yes. funny. And then <laughs> when they do the second thing. And you said it's yeah. coming all over again? I was like, oh my god. <laughs> I know. When you watch like, the behind-the-scenes footage, Drew Goddard is, like, slipping because there's so much, like, blood on the ground. As he's, like, telling... Oh, he's like, well, when you're eating this person, you gotta make sure you really chow down on him. And everyone's, like, slipping and sliding in the background. And they've got, like, oh, a giant god. hose and they're spraying blood everywhere. <laughs> That's incredible. So, did they use? Is it like thematic blood or pig's blood? Like it's it, it's fake blood. It is fake blood. Okay, okay, okay. yeah. Because yeah. otherwise, oh my god, I can't even imagine if they use pig's blood. Did you imagine the amount of pigs they'd have to like slaughtered. Like <laughs> the quote was, "The blood was in all of our clothes." That was oh the quote from Joss Whedon as they were walking That's around the, the set. That's the only way a horror movie should be made. Yeah, so there's so much blood that is in everything. Um, That's amazing. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, I will also note that the only scene that I've seen that's gorier than that scene is when they did the mermaid shot. So the way they made the mermaid shot is they actually had to put like a hose into the mermaid costume and then (laughs) and then like air compressor the blood into the air to give it the spraying effect. And so the scene is like 10 minutes long of just continually blood spraying when they shot it. And they just took the best bits of it. But so it's just literally, like, somebody pretending to be a mermaid going, like, slap, 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 like, on the ground. (laughs) And, like, just blood continuously raining down. Oh, my God. It's so disgusting. That's so much. They they could only do it on one take because there was so much blood, it actually ruined the set. It, like, broke the set. They're like, okay, guys, we gotta get this once because we're about to spray a shit ton of blood everywhere. Yeah. Guitar even went out to say, like, this movie was so difficult to make, he's happy he was a first-time director, because if he had directed anything else before this, he yeah. never would have made it the way he did. He, uh, he, would have just, he would have just relied on digital effects. But because he's a first-time uh, director, he's like, yeah, I'm making this movie this way. And he's like, it yeah. looks better now because of it, but at the time, yeah. I wouldn't have... <laughs> 
Dun, dun. Yeah, I'd be like, dude, fuck that. It's going to be too hard to shoot. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so glad. Yeah, that's another thing is during this time period, the digital effects were just good enough to, like, put them in movies, and everyone's like, oh, it's good enough. But we could – not only could we tell, it also sucked, and it doesn't age well. <laughs> yeah, I, I would say that the, even there are scenes in this movie that don't age as well as I would hope. But right. at the same time, the the use of the digital effects is limited enough where yeah. it's not horrible. Right, exactly. Like, like even the couple – and there's also so much obvious practical effects. Yeah. That mm-hmm. it, it's not something I really have to worry about too much. Yeah, no, I agree. All right, what's our next award, Age? Well, speaking of awards, I just want to touch base real quick with the Fangoria Chainsaw Awards. When available, we're going to go ahead and refer to them. Uh, for those who don't know, Fangoria is – one of the great horror magazines. They've been around for decades. And every year, they do the Chainsaw Awards. And the Chainsaw Awards basically allow the fans to vote on their best uh, of a movie, uh, of the horror genre every year. And Cabin in the Woods won Best Wide Release Film, Best Makeup uh, Creature Effects, obviously, nice. uh, yeah. Best Supporting Actor for Frank Kranz, and Best Screenplay. <laughs> Wow. So all of those make sense. Nothing was like particularly crazy that they were up against. Sure. Just like for reference, the other big horror movies that year that qualified, they're Sinister with Ethan Hawke, oh. uh, which, is, yeah. which is pretty good. Um, it's okay. The Grey, which is Liam Neeson fights wolves. That's oh, more. I remember that movie? <laughs> that, that, that that's more of a thriller than it is a horror yeah. movie. Yeah. But that one got a handful of of, of nods. Uh, sure. Silent Hill Revelation was out that year. I don't oh, think people were super high on that movie. <laughs> All the Silent Hill movies are just bad. Um, <laughs> the the Innkeepers technically were released in this calendar year. I think that's the one movie that is actually super underrated from this list sure. that people just didn't get around to. Another yeah. one, by the way, that is on this list is Paranorman, which oh. is an excellent stop motion An movie. amazing yeah, an yeah. amazing child's horror film. It's, like, actually scary. Yes. So, <laughs> those two movies don't get a ton of love at the awards. They get nominated a couple times, but didn't quite get the, the huge response that Cabin in the Woods gets. And, I mean, Cabin just, like, basically walks away in almost every category it's nominated. Strangely, the one person who's not nominated is Kristen Connolly. I find that really weird. Yeah. Why do you think that is? I honest to God can't tell you. Um, she didn't get nominated sure. for Best Lead Actress. Uh, that instead went to Elizabeth Olsen for Silent House, which I can honestly say I've never seen. Um, no, me neither. I, I like, legitimately didn't even know Elizabeth Olsen existed until she was Scarlet Witch. <laughs> yeah, there, there's a lot of people who didn't know her until then. So yeah. um, And then, interestingly enough, Joss Whedon gets inducted into the Fangoria Horror Hall of Fame this year uh, alongside wow. David Lynch. Wow. So this year or 2012? The 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 this was the 2013 Chainsaw Awards when Cabin wow. in the Woods was eligible. That's awesome. So I mean, Damn, like, me, that also tells you. with David Lynch. That's like crazy. Well, and I was gonna <laughs> say that also tells us like how popular Joss Whedon was at this moment. I mean, right. I think that kind of gives away our next award. We're gonna call this the Mandy Award, where Ryan and I yeah. basically debate: is this the person's pinnacle achievement? Um, I love your last one there. <laughs> Yeah, well, so so so, <laughs> so so the so the Mandy Award is gonna be named is named after the Nicolas Cage movie Mandy. Ryan believes that is Nicolas Cage's pinnacle achievement in cinema. I think 
it came a little bit earlier than that. I, I love Mandy. Sure. Mandy's one of my favorite sure. movies, but I have a different AJ thing. thinks it's when he won an Oscar. <laughs> yeah, when he won his Oscar in the late 90s, and right after coming off of... And, and then would then immediately go on to make The Rock and make <laughs> Con Air and Face Off. I, I think that's... Like the horror fan. I mean, as the horror fan, I'm just like, fucking Mandy. <laughs> so, okay, so we're going to go ahead and we're going to say... We're going to go through a list of people. Is this their pinnacle? Okay? Yes. So, Joss Whedon. I think it's pretty clear that this is the pinnacle of Joss Whedon. Sure. I mean, between I this... Chris Hemworth. <laughs> yeah. I mean, between between this and Avengers coming out within a month of each other, it's hard yeah. to deny. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Uh, Drew Goddard, the director of this movie. I'm going to say no, only because he would later get nominated for an Oscar. Um, yeah. He also has okay. made other movies. The Martian is a fantastic movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kristen Connolly, who plays Dana, the lead. Okay. I would say yes. You'll have to talk to me about that. <laughs> yeah, I, I have to say yes. I don't know if there's really a lot else that she's been able to lead. She's been a supporting uh, character and other stuff, but not as a lead actress. Sure. All right, Chris Hemsworth. Obviously not. Like, literally cannot be. <laughs> yeah, there's the, I mean... He's there's, like a superstar right now. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> even to this day, he is so big. I mean, like, so... Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that we can definitively say no. Uh, Jesse Williams, yeah. I'm going to also say no. Uh, sure. Jesse Williams, having just finished like a 12-year run on Grey's Anatomy, and yeah. is so popular that somebody snuck a phone into his Broadway show. Um, wow. Now, the reason why this is important is because he's currently in a show that uh, has full frontal male nudity. So oh. a picture of him leaked on the internet, which is oh, really gosh. screwed up, to be honest. Yeah. But yeah, Jesse Williams... Clearly, he has done so much more in his career. And even beyond that, his speech at the BET Awards a couple years ago for his social justice activism, I think that is like peak Jesse Williams. That he's been able to take the career that he's had and really use it to advance a lot of people. No, absolutely. And we can all figure out whether he's hung or not, right? <laughs> yes, that as well. We can now. We can now. Yeah, the answer is yes, by the way. Um, <laughs> okay. What's our next guy? <laughs> uh, we're going to kind of combo these two, Richard Jenkins and Bradley Whitford. I think that they're okay. the, the veteran actors who give this movie, like, credit, but right. it's because they're lifelong veteran actors. So I'm going to say right. this may not be their pinnacle, but it certainly helped introduce them to a new generation. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Whitford is even in Get Out uh, a few years later. And, ah, very cool. Yeah, so I mean, they, they, they've definitely bounced around and been in a lot of stuff, but they're both... Yeah, this can't be their peak. <laughs> yeah. And my last one, Mermaids. Is this the peak of mermaids? <laughs> I don't know. We had the documentary <laughs> where people started to believe that they actually existed, so... <laughs> I, I totally forgot about that. I was going to say, uh, there's something about A Little Mermaid that I think is probably the pinnacle of mermaids. Uh <laughs> You're right, you're right. I don't know, it's either The Little Mermaid or the resurgence of the documentary that got people to believe that mermaids existed. <laughs> Have you seen The Lure? I haven't. You haven't? Yeah, there's a horror musical about mermaids um, oh, that I think, wow. I think we're going to have to cover at some point. And yeah, it's a, in a foreign, it's in a foreign language, it's crazy. Okay. Um, we'll definitely... <laughs> I'm just... I'm just saying there there legitimately isn't enough mermaid horror out there. Like let's Honestly, get on that for not, bands. Like, not, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what do you who are you, you going to go with? If we're giving it to a single person 
you know what? I can't do it because I strongly dislike him. So I'm just going to go ahead and give this one to Kristen Connolly. This is her <laughs> pinnacle. She had to be a scream queen right. for a minute. I'm going to give it to her over yeah. Whedon. I mean, it, it, yeah. This is Whedon's peak, but no, I'm not going to let him <laughs> take this award. <laughs> You're not getting our Manny Awards, Josh. You're not doing it. <laughs> our so. fake made up award on a podcast. <laughs> Exactly. All right. Uh, the Marion Crane Gone Too Soon Award. Spoiler alert for a 70-year-old movie. She gets murdered in Psycho. So. Yes. And she's like a star. At that time, she's like a star amongst, like, movies at that time. So it was like a star actress getting killed within, what, the first, like, 20 minutes? Like 35 minutes of the movie, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the Gone Too Soon Award. Uh, I have Holden, Jesse Williams. Yeah. He seems like a genuinely good guy. And then all of yeah. a sudden he's dead. Yeah. Um, there's Lynn, played by Amy Acker. She is the scientist woman. Is she in it long enough? I don't know. She see, don't know. As somebody who watched the Whedon shows, I thought she was going to be in it more than she's not. Sure. I said Mordecai, who's played by <laughs> Tim Dazarn, uh, yes. the harbinger. He's the one who tells him, hey, don't yes. go to this cabin. I just think he's yes. literally not in it enough. We should, we, he no. should have been in it more. <laughs> I know. I love the phone call. Am I on speaker? I'm on speaker, aren't I? <laughs> Go ahead. What do you think? We, we probably could also realistically have included the poor girl at the beginning, uh, Anna Hutchinson, who gets killed yeah. first. She should also yeah. be in the conversation for this. I know. Yeah, I agree. You know, I actually think with, like, one person he didn't mention that I think was gone too soon, and it was a really funny death, was uh, Chris Hemworth. Honestly, honestly. Like, yeah, he's know. like, he's about to act courageously and, like, be this, like, super stud dude and hits the invisible <laughs> force field, you know? <laughs> it's a good point. It's a very good point. To be fair, he's going to get his own in a second. Yeah. Because okay, okay, okay. He, he, He's going to win an award. We'll, we'll get that one. <laughs> wow, that is true. That is true. <laughs> okay, so I'm, I'm going to say no to him. Yes. I, I'm going to say the person who probably should get it is... Holden, the Jesse Williams yeah. character. I think that that yep. character, we don't, we only see him as a good guy. We don't get to see him yeah. ever be a hero, and instead he just gets yeah. murdered. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I would like to have seen more, built more into that character. He was literally just a meat bag, and I think, I think Lynn, we saw um, a good amount of, and we understood that character. I don't think there was much more to build off of. Um, and I think the interesting one would be Mordecai. <laughs> Like, the thing about Mordecai, I love that he's, the, he's the only one taking this thing seriously. And yeah, he took it so seriously. He's it so seriously. He's like, we gotta do this. And then, <laughs> is that his fault that the team fails? Yeah, exactly. Mordecai was a uh, Mordecai was proverbially balls deep into this simulation. Like, yep. <laughs> all right, go ahead. I, I think Holden's a good one for that one. <laughs> okay, uh, the Steve Hadley Award. Uh, yeah. The character name is in the title. It's. <laughs> It is the character played by Bradley Whitford. Uh, it's going to be for the biggest regret, the character with the biggest regret of the movie. <laughs> Undeniably, him. He after he's eaten yes. a mermaid. He all he wanted to see yeah. a mermaid. He finally sees a mermaid. Yeah, and he gets eaten. <laughs> yes, that's incredible. Come on, <laughs> I know. <laughs> that's incredible. So speaking of the other character, Kurt Vaughn, the Kurt Vaughn Most Overconfident Award. He's the character who. Believes they are the hero of this movie, and they are not. Yes. <laughs> Undeniably, this is Chris Hemsworth. He, yes. <laughs> we're naming the award after him. Yes. There'll, there'll be more fun with this one in later movies, but when he 
takes off and he hits that wall. Yeah. Especially because Hemsworth is at the time when this movie released, we all already knew he was Thor. We're like, oh, he's clearly the movie star of this movie, and then he's right. gone. He's boom. Yeah. It's a good point. You do make a great point that he should have been concerned for Marion Crane for that yeah. reason alone. But that death is just so iconic, like to this movie. It's, it's <laughs> so good. It is so good. Yeah. The way that it follows him the whole way down. Yes. <laughs> the best effect. Okay. What do you think? So the the four nominees I had are the upside down stab through the face of Daddy Buckner when okay. the Buckner guy comes into the room and he's standing upside down and yeah. Dana literally stabs him through the face with a pole. Yeah. That's yeah. a pretty gnarly effect. Yeah. Um the mermaid blowhole. Yeah. Uh gut rips. Whenever characters are being ripped apart, that is all practical effects. So wow. lots and lots and lots and lots of fake intestine. Um, yeah. And finally, the ballerina dancer's face. Also practical. Like her face wow, was just that's teeth. practical? Her, t- her wow. face just teeth. It's terrifying. Yeah, that's an amazing practical effect. I'm sure that was CGI. That's incredible. Yeah. I mean, I, I love that face effect. I really do. Um, I think that the most um, unique is probably the blowhole. Yes. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I, would so, I, I would agree that yeah, that's I think the one that I'm leaning towards yeah exactly I love the ballerina's face though that's so cool I think it's between those two so I think we're yeah. both going to go with the mermaid blowhole but the ballerina yep. face is like really close yeah and if, you, if you like get a chance go online and check out the character design there's so many yeah. crazy characters even when the little um, when the little boxes are moving around when they get inside the like the glass door. It's just like a cat <laughs> wandering around. <laughs> That's incredible. That's the goosebumps. Did you ever read that? The, the t- a young adult goosebumps. Yeah. Oh yeah. Killer sure. cat. Yep. <laughs> so icon feedback when possible, we're going to go ahead and point out somebody who is an icon within the film industry or within horror or within the movie and what their opinion of the movie was. In this case, we're going to go with Robert Ebert or Roger Ebert, who said, this is not a perfect movie. It's so ragged, it's practically constructed of loose ends. But it's exciting because adventure is so far off the map. One imagines the filmmakers chortling with glee as they devise the first first one bizarre development and then another in a free-for-all of their imaginations. They establish rules only to violate them. Three out of four stars. I think it's a pretty good review. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for a first first time director movie and yep how and like you said like how abstract it really is like i think that's pretty good it is very out there like that's that's the other big thing about it this versus something like scream Wes craven was the director of scream so Mm. he was like a horror icon he was an industry icon at that point so that's why he gets the leeway to do as much as he does with that movie and he's working off a pretty good script this movie i mean i guess Joss Whedon is the the guarantor to help make this movie happen at all, but Godard takes Great. some wild swings with it. Yeah, absolutely. All right, uh, the Norman Bates moment, uh, which is, in our opinion, like the big twist of the movie in terms of like, mm-hmm. oh, I thought this was going one direction and then it's heading in a very different direction. There's really only two options. Uh, the first one is the Richard Jenkins prayer, which is yeah. the first time you're like, oh, these people are like really going to sacrifice these kids. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's actually what they're here to do. And they're doing it yeah. for, like, ritualistic sacrifice. The mm-hmm. other one is when the party is going on and there's a phone call. And all of a sudden, they're like, what do you mean the person's not dead? And then we get yeah. Marty returns to the screen pretty triumphantly after that. 
Yeah. I think those are the two scenes. So which one do you think is mm-hmm. more important for the movie? I I think that the I think that the 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 prayer is honestly the biggest portion because mm-hmm. that's when it like turns into like oh it's this like sadistic like government agency trying to kill children to like oh no there's something much bigger right it's interesting because i think part of what makes this movie work so well is that you're simultaneously rooting for the government to to kill these kids and also you want them to survive yeah absolutely it's like it is a very fascinating thing and at the the end of the day they leave a they like we me and you talk about frequently this movie doesn't spoon feed you the right or wrong answer right like the movie does end the movie does end with a specific ending and the decision is made but like it's kind of that uh what is the the train where you have to choose between like a line of people or one elderly person yeah, like it is very much uh oh god it's the train problem the trolley problem yeah mm-hmm. yeah it's literally that is is killing these five people worth humanity surviving right <laughs> and you know it, it's really interesting in that regard because I have to struggle with that choice today. Yeah. Like, when I first watched the movie, I really didn't like the movie because of its ending. I was like, these people are so naive and dumb. Why would they possibly think that? And you're just like, I don't know, maybe. (laughs) Like, maybe it is time (laughs) to just restart the whole thing. Yeah, maybe it's time we we don't allow uh, a bunch of children to die. Yeah. (laughs) Like, maybe that is the flaw. It's interesting that that can now be built into this movie. Stuff like yeah. that is relevant, and it's not an incorrect reading of the movie. I don't know. There's yeah, sure. there's some interesting commentary to be had within the text of this movie that can really yeah. apply. And that conversation of should we keep this going because it's tradition, or should we break the whole thing down? And you know, even if it means there's going to be a lot of bad things in the short term. Yeah, I don't know. It's an interesting conversation to have. No, absolutely, I agree. What do we got next, Age? All right, it's our final award. Who won the movie? Is it Drew Goddard, Chris Hemsworth, or Joss Whedon? I think the I mean, winner... we all know the answer to that one, right? <laughs> Honestly, I think the winner's Chris Hemsworth, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because he gets cast in this movie. He's not really... He's like an Australian like soap opera star at this point. Oh, wow. A couple days on set on this movie, they sent his dailies up, and people are like, yo, this guy's a movie star. Period. The end. He's wow. a movie star from day one, and he yeah. gets two movies directly on the back of him, one of which has turned into a now 13-year gig that he yeah. can just come back to whenever he feels like. If he doesn't want to do it anymore, he'll eventually say no. Like I think that day yeah. is coming, but at the same time, he's now an icon forever, no matter yeah. what. So I Absolutely. think Chris Hemsworth has to be the winner, even though this might have been Joss Whedon at the peak of his powers. Yeah, Hemsworth is the person who comes out and is like, this dude is a movie star, period, the end. Yeah. Like, he got, like, slingshotted, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so he was, like, slingshotted. Not not directly from this movie, per, per se, but it definitely helped. Well, I was going to say, having this and Avengers back-to-back, it proved that, yeah. like, after the, first event, uh, after the first Thor movie, everyone's like, I don't know, it's not really working. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, here's this completely other side of him, and it undeniably yeah. works. Yeah, absolutely. Like, his, his arrogance, his, like ability to be like super charismatic and yeah. you can see him as like a hero in anything like the reason yeah. that scene where he hits the force field is so effective is because he is oozing charisma i agree with that completely yeah i'll stick with that one i think i'm most of the good winner for the winner of the movie all right cabin in the woods what would you what would you rate on a scale of one to ten 
Cabin in the Woods. Hmm. I'd probably, honestly, I'd probably give it, my gut says seven. It says a seven. It's, it's a solid movie. It's fun. It's something that I think, you know, every horror fan should watch, but I don't think it's for everybody. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I find very interesting, I think that I appreciate genre stuff so much that I yeah. rate it even higher than you should usually do. Yeah. It's an interesting like note that I have, because I'm going to give this a 9 out of 10. I think this is a wow. nearly perfect movie. Okay. And my only issue with it is the end of the movie. And even now, I'm, I'm, I started to waver on it. I, I do think it's a super effective use of everything Oh, and the end. Really? I think it's funny that you that you were uh, against the ending. I feel like the ending is like is is perfect. I think I see. I, I think I'm one of the few people who, honest to God, has had problems with the ending. I think most people mm-hmm. feel your way, and, and I'm the outlier in this particular circumstance. That's fine. But yeah, I, I think it's a for me, it's a firm nine out of ten, and I think depending on the day, it's a ten out of ten. Like I think it's a yeah. a, a borderline masterpiece movie. Period. That's of, of, of any movie. Like, no, absolutely, and that, that's why you chose it for our first episode. Yep, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think I think the only reason I put it at a seven is, like, I just think people that aren't part of the genre won't appreciate it as much as people in the genre. So That's probably, just, that's 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 probably fair. All right, so if you guys have any other questions, go ahead and reach out to us. Uh, Ryan, what's your Twitter handle? My Twitter handle is keepitspooky09. Uh, mine's the Alan French. Uh, you can also hit us up on our joint Twitter account. We have an at Bella Lugosi pod on Twitter. All right, guys. Keep it spooky. Peace out.